be continuing with the theme of the month uh, that Pastor uh, had set, which is the life of Paul. And we'll be talking about, I think, one of the most important subjects in in relation to the Christian faith. Since I just switched things over here. Okay, make sure I get a picture here. All right, come on over. Praise God. We're talking about a subject that's very important. I think it's really, it's the foundation for everything within the Christian faith. Uh, You can name a subject within Christendom, and at some juncture, it's going to come back to this. This is like the hub, the foundation of really, of what the Christian faith is about. Uh, You can talk about healing, finances, deliverance, whatever, mental wellness, whatever you want to talk about in relation to the Christian faith. And this subject pretty much uh, addresses it. And we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, starting, I believe, at verse 21, if my memory serves me right, as we are trying to get the notes here. 21, yes, verse 21, looking at verse 26. And the subject is called the new man, Paul's revelation. And we're looking at, as I said before, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21 through 26. Again, our theme for the month is the life of Paul. And Paul had a revelation regarding what salvation is. Uh, that he revealed throughout his epistles that is really truly just remarkable. And it's something that he himself got. And uh, we're going to address that in today's lesson and address a whole bunch of different issues. We're talking about what is salvation and what do we get whenever we're saved. I think that a lot of times whenever salvation is presented to us, is presented as or emphasized more so the method in which we're saved as opposed to what we're actually attaining when we do get saved. And so this lesson is divided into four sections. The first is called the tip of the iceberg, and I just kind of introduced uh, that section there. That we're going to talk about salvation, but oftentimes when salvation is preached or it's taught or it's presented, it only is really hitting the tip of the iceberg, just part of what salvation is. And in this section, I want to try to delineate and explain, expand upon all that salvation encompasses uh, to the believer. Number two, putting off the old man, how we walk in this salvation, talking about getting rid of the old lifestyle, the old carnal nature that is holding us back from really inheriting everything that is in Christ. The third section is called, Who Are You? And we're going to talk about our identity in Christ, who we are in relation to being a Christian and being a believer. And really, this is the crux of the whole matter, is really about our identity in Christ. Finally, we'll talk about in section number four, when Clark Kent became Superman. We're going to talk about how to put on this new identity, this new salvation that Christ has given us, and how to truly live the Christian life. And so, normally this is something I teach over a couple months. Uh, I've tried to cram it into one lesson, so (laughs) this is going to be a little bit content-dense, and I'm hoping to get through all of it within the space of uh, an hour and 15 minutes or so. I'm going to do the best I can. And again, stop me if I'm not making sense, or if you have questions. I love questions. Questions mean that you're listening Questions means that you're engaged, you're trying to retain and understand the material. So feel free to ask questions if I'm making, not making sense or if I'm going too fast here. But let's jump into our lesson here. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 21, talking about Paul's revelation. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So Paul here in this text, and you're going to see this throughout all of his epistles, throughout the entire New Testament, this idea of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And this is Paul's revelation that he he received 
from Christ. And we're going to elaborate on that a little bit later here. But let's jump into our first section. Section number one, the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg. As I alluded to earlier, that oftentimes that salvation is presented in a way that really only gives us just the tip. Just and not saying it's wrong or it's bad or it's false, it's good. And, we, and what is presented is necessary. But oftentimes we really are shortchanging um, our hearers, our listeners, the body of Christ and those who are coming to Christ as to truly what salvation is. The gospel has become like an iceberg because what is often preached is just a small portion of what God's plan is for our lives. In Romans chapter 1, Paul, he says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For those of you that have been born again, those of you who have been saved, uh, and you're struggling in your walk with God in some avenue, in some aspect, it's because in some juncture, at some juncture, you are misapplying or perhaps even misunderstanding the truth of the gospel. The power of God's salvation is rooted in our understanding of the gospel. If we have an, have an issue in our salvation, then it's because of a lack of understanding or misapplication of its principles. That if we're, if we're lacking in power, it's because we don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If we want to see deliverance, then we must attain a true understanding of what the gospel is. And I believe this is what is lacking in the church is because we don't fully grasp or comprehend all that the gospel encompasses and what has been afforded to us whenever we became born again and when we got saved. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 5, and I'll get your question in just a minute. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away, for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And this is something I, I, that is also uh, a trend that we're seeing in the body of Christ, that people have been in church for many, many years. They've gone to conferences. They're chasing the next thing, ever learning, but never arriving at the full revelation and understanding of what the truth is regarding Christ and the gospel and who they are. And their lifestyles are denying the power of the true effectiveness, the efficacy of God's word and his spirit working in their lives. I believe there was a question back here. You had a comment or a question? Did you, had your, you had your hand up? We're not completely submitting ourselves to God. Therefore, we can't grasp the gospel or understand his true love for us and how he developed us because we're caught in the old man or the old woman and we won't let it go. Exactly, yes. That there's, there's a lack of uh, submission that is there. Uh, true dedication to holiness and righteousness and, and we're not getting rid of the old man. I'm going to cover that more so in section number two. But the thing is that we, we have people who are, that are constantly learning, to, you know, reading books, but it just seems like they're still stuck in, in, a, in a position of carnality and of being in the old man. And I think the reason why is because they don't fully comprehend what is afforded to us in the gospel. And here's one, one aspect of it. So the gospel has kind of two halves to it. Uh, one I'd like to call the legality of salvation. And the second, the identity of salvation. That there's two aspects to it. That there's a legal part. There's a judicious part, and then there's another part, which is more of the supernatural transformation, the identity aspect of salvation. Typically what is preached uh, from the pulpit, and it's not wrong, and it is necessary, but it's overemphasized, is the legality of salvation. What I mean by this? 
Part of salvation is the, is the remission, absolving, or forgiveness of sins. Christ removes the, the record of our offenses and declares us righteous. We see in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Colossians 2.13 says this, And you being dead in your sins and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, which means to make alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. So we had committed sin, trespasses, we have offended God, we are, we are guilty as charged. And one aspect of salvation is Christ remitting or forgiving, absolving us of our transgressions and of our sins. He has wiped the slate clean. Our record is clean and righteous, just as his, he is righteous. And that's good. That's fine that we're preaching that. But that's only one part of it. And there's a, there's a flaw that, is, that gets exploited if we only preach that part of it. Think of it in, in the sense of our criminal justice system. Let's say that we have a criminal who's committed a, a crime and he is guilty of it. And the judge absolves him and, and, and just wipes the, the, the record clean. Okay, that's fine. But he's still a criminal. He still has a criminal nature. And he still has a criminal tendency to commit crimes. And that same person, even though his record is clean, is still a criminal by nature and therefore will commit more crimes. The problem is not solved. If you just tell people that salvation is just God just wiping the slate clean, but there's no transformation or change then that's not really salvation. You're still a sinner. You're still dead in your sins. That's only part of it. But that's what's often preached. Come to Christ, repent of your sins, believe in Christ, get baptized in his name, receive the Holy Ghost. But the thing is, though, if you've not had a changed nature, if it's just the legalities, he's just written it off, then there's no true salvation. And so that's, that's the, the problem with this, this legality of salvation. Salvation is limited to legality. And now, here's some things that, that arise whenever this occurs. Whenever we just preach the legal, the legal aspect of salvation. Number one, the method is emphasized, but the end result is not. So we're emphasizing, you need to be saved. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to repent of your sins. Be baptized in Jesus' name. Receive the Holy Ghost. But what are you getting when, after you've done all that? What is the end game in this? So we're, we're, sell, we're marketing something and selling someone, saying, you need to have this. We're not telling them what they're actually getting when they get it. And because of that, we are shortchanging the true power of the gospel in their lives. Number two, the end result isn't fully represented. In other words, we present salvation as just avoiding hell and gaining heaven. Just, just get saved so you don't go to hell. Just get saved so you can go to heaven and live eternally. Now, that's, there's nothing wrong necessarily in just in presenting that aspect because that's true. But that's really only the tip of the iceberg of what it is. And whenever you form, formulate the presentation that way, it leads to, well, I like to say bad motives. Bad motives and, and also just a bad application of the scripture. Because now we have people who are getting saved because they look at God as some sort of tyrant, some sort of bully or dictator that is looking to punish them and to avoid said punishment, not getting punched in the face. I'll give you my lunch money, God, so you'll leave me alone. So people are coming to God out of fear and not out of love and true attraction to him. Now, don't get me wrong. That the fear of God needs to be put in people. People do need to realize that there is a hell to, to shun. That we do need to turn away from sin. And that's fine if you start there. But you shouldn't stay there. Because a lot of people, they're coming to God and they're coming to church not out of love for God, but out of fear of him. I'm coming to church because I don't want to go to hell. 
Not because I, want, I have a relationship with him and have intimacy with him. And so we have almost like, it's almost like an abusive relationship. Uh, a spouse is, not, is only coming home and staying with their husband because they're afraid of what he'll do to them. And we don't want to present God in that way. Although there is a judgment, don't get me wrong, there is a judgment to avoid. There most certainly is a hell to shun and we, we need to be concerned about that. Please understand me, I'm not uh, belittling that point. But we also want to balance that out with the other aspect, the other motive of why we are being saved. Number three, sometimes presented as something we do instead of what Christ does. And oftentimes we hear people, again, emphasizing the method of salvation. You need to do this, do this, do that to be saved. And again, not minimizing that. We do need to take action in order to be saved. But we do that, I think, to a detriment of, the, of Christ's um, role or involvement in the salvation process. That primarily it is Christ that is doing the changing and doing the saving. We're just positioning ourselves in a place to receive that salvation. And I've used this analogy many, many times before. Now, okay, so let me get, uh, get you this uh, comment here, and then I'll come back to this analogy here. I was just thinking because the reason why a lot of churches have become so weak, because there's a fake love that's out that's not transforming anything. The Word of God says that the Word is able not to conform you to the world, but to transform you. So the Word has to be preached where there's a transforming. And yes, there is a hell, and we must know that there is one, because if you don't hold to knowing that there is a hell, then it makes you feel like you can live any kind of way and do whatever you want. And this one has happened to the church. Because people have said that we should just love people, there's no judgment or no condemnation. And it really has affected the church to make the church weak instead of preaching what the gospel says where there is power. Well, certainly. And again, I want to emphasize the point that I'm not minimizing the whole judgment thing, okay? I'm not soft-pedaling that. I'm just trying to balance it, that's all. That... It's, it's more than just hell, fire, and damnation. Although that, as Sister John said, there is a hell to fear. There is a judgment. There is an accountability that is coming. There's a reckoning that is coming. I'm not soft-pedaling that. I want to make that clear, okay? I just want to say I want to balance that. I want to preach the, the whole counsel of God and show the other aspects of it. But getting back to this point about sometimes presented as something we do instead of what Christ does. That uh, we're, we're putting the, the emphasis on, yes, our actions, which we do need to take. But we're forgetting that, there's, that God is the one primarily doing the saving. And the, the analogy I use, and you guys have all heard this parable I use all the time, that the, the diaper parable. As you know, I have five children, and uh, I've changed my fair share of diapers. And the fact of the matter is a baby, an infant, is incapable of changing itself. It makes a mess. It naturally, its nature is to make a mess of itself. And it is incapable of changing itself. If you walked into the room and you saw your three-month-old baby getting up and taking the diaper off and, and wiping itself and... You're like, what in the world is going on? We don't have that expectation on a baby because it literally is incapable of changing itself. What it does instead, because it can't change itself, it becomes angry and fussy and begins to cry. And what it's saying is, Daddy, change me. It's saying, Daddy, change me. I cannot change. I'm in my mess. I'm uncomfortable. So what does Daddy do? Daddy comes in. Really, really it's my wife in the primary that does it. But I do it sometimes too. But I, I go and I, I go to change him. Right? Because he cannot change himself. No more than you can change yourself. Now the thing is this. He's made a mess of himself. He's sitting in his own mess. Alright? And in order for me to really get rid of this, for him to uh, be healthy, I have to change him. If I don't change him, he could get infected, he could get sick, and he could die. 
And the thing is, though, when I go to change him, he fights me. Or my daughters, they fight me. Right? They kick and they scream and they're grabbing the poop and they're rolling away and trying to escape. Because they don't want to be changed in one sense. Why? Because I'm about to be exposed. Something cold and wet is about to be rubbed on the most intimate parts of my body. It's invasive. It's uncomfortable. But if I don't change them, she, he or she could die of infection or disease. In the same sense that God is wanting us to position ourselves of vulnerability, of humility, make ourselves open and say, God, change me. God is not intimidated by the messy life of your diaper. He's like, oh man, that's too much. Let's pull that back up. No, he's not intimidated. He wants to take his blood and wash away, wipe away the mess. Now the thing is, whenever my son or my daughters, they try to move and try to to work on their own, it makes the process longer, harder, and frankly, messier. All that they would just rest and just trust daddy to change them. The changing process could be like that. And it's the same thing with salvation. If we would just, like a baby, just realize I cannot change myself. I cannot work or earn myself into it. It's not my my works that get me saved. Primarily, it's God who's doing the changing and doing the saving. We need to realize that point. Yes, there's a part that we play. Really, it's just us sitting there. That's what faith is. Hebrews 4, 3 says, For we which have uh, believed have entered into rest. We're in a state of rest where God is able to, to work in our lives. That's really all we're doing by doing by repenting and being baptized in his name and, and all that other stuff is is really just faith. It's faith in action. Let's continue with this. Legality versus identity. So salvation is often presented in a way that primarily emphasizes its legality or the forgiveness of sins and not the transformation of the sinner. Galatians 6.14, the Apostle Paul says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the, the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. It doesn't matter how many legalities you fulfill, how many laws that you obey. What matters is, are you a new creation? Have you truly been born again? Has there been a transformation? It's more than just a legal proclamation or edict that is ushered or, or, or issued, I should say. It is a transformation of nature. So question number one, what does it really mean to be saved? i got three points. There's obviously more than three, but to keep this lesson timely, I'll just stick it to these three. What does it really mean to be saved? It is a work of God and not of man. I cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, I've seen, especially in holiness churches, people tend to think that because that they are holy, that they think that they've saved themselves, and they become self-righteous and judgmental and pointing fingers at others who are not at their level of faith. Well, I'm I'm so righteous. I'm so saved. I baptized myself and all this other stuff. When really, no, you're nothing but a dirt bag that God had mercy on. All of us are. All of us are. We have nothing to brag or boast about. Nothing. Which is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, chapter 8, verse 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith... That and, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If I'm doing it, then it's not salvation. It's Christ in me, working in me, making the change. Just like the baby analogy, my child, my infant baby, my baby cannot change itself. No more can you. No matter how many self-help books you read, no matter how many psychologists you visit, no matter how much Prozac you take, it does not change your nature. Which brings me to my next point. 
Salvation is not a change in actions, but a change in nature and in the heart. It is, I know that, I know we, we tend to, to, to preach this oftentimes, but about the, the actions, but it's not the actions, it's the nature. Salvation is not a change in action, it's a change in nature. And when your nature changes, your actions will change. Because your actions is a natural outworking of your nature. And because that we don't understand that, we keep trying to just change our actions instead of allowing God to change our nature and change our heart. Which is why, doesn't matter how many works you do, doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how much you pay your tithes, how many days you fast, or how many Bible verses you can quote, doesn't matter how, what position you are in the church. But people keep trying to earn their salvation, even though it's been clearly stated in the scripture that salvation is not of works. Jeremiah 13, 23 says this, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may he also do good that are accustomed to do evil. The leopard cannot change his spots. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin. No more can the sinner change his nature by himself. The sinner needs a savior to transform him into the righteousness of God. It's imperative that we understand this. So here's a good example. You can look this up on YouTube. I, I was going to put it in the lesson. I, I haven't, didn't have time to do it. But there's a video on YouTube where there's this cat and it's barking like a dog. It's like it's at a window and it's going, rawr, rawr, and it's barking. And the owner has a videotape and it's videoing this cat. And it walks up to the cat. And the cat is barking. And then the cat sees the owner and goes, rawr, 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 meow. And it starts, starts to meow because it got caught. And that's a lot, that's how a lot of us are, okay? Barking like a dog doesn't make you a dog. No matter how much that cat barks, it's still a cat. Doesn't matter how, I know I'm hammering this, but I really want you to grasp this, okay? Doesn't matter how much good stuff you do, unless Christ changes you, you're still in your sins. You're still a sinner. People aren't going there because of specific sins they've committed. They're going there because of their nature, that they are by nature a sinner. Let us continue. So I really want to emphasize this thing. The baptism of the Holy Ghost, this is where this really comes into play. And we, we tell people you need to get the Holy Ghost. And I really want to emphasize this Holy Ghost thing. Because it's, it's truly amazing. This is where it really all comes together with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Matthew 3.11, uh, John the Baptist, he was at the River Jordan. And he was preaching to his congregation about the one who was to come, Jesus Christ. And he says in Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The Greek word there for baptize is baptizo. And it literally means to dip repeatedly, immerse, submerge, to saturate. I really want you to focus on that last word about saturation. Not just immersion or submersion, but saturation. Full saturation. Every nook and cranny and crevice and hole is filled is filled with the essence of God. To really help us to understanding uh, as this relates to salvation, uh, there's a, a wonderful little uh, clip I want to, actually an uh, article I want to read you. This is from uh, the Bible study magazine, James Montgomery Voice, uh, May of 1989. There's a brilliant analogy of what the baptism of the Holy Ghost is, what baptism is. The clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo is a text from the Greek poet and physician Icander who lived about 200 B.C., it is a recipe for making pickle sand, and it's helpful because it uses both words. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable, which is a cucumber, should be first dipped, bapto, into boiling water, 
and then baptized in the vinegar solution. Now, two things here, and this is an analogy for water baptism and also the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So the thing is, whenever you're making a pickle, you take a cucumber, first you baptize it in hot, hot water. What the hot water does is it opens up the pores of the cucumber. And then once the pores are open, you then take that cucumber and you baptize it in vinegar. The vinegar saturates every cell of that cucumber, and the cucumber is no longer a cucumber anymore. It's now a pickle. It is so merged itself with the solution of vinegar that you can't separate the two. You can slice it, dice it, shred it. The vinegar is one with it. And that is exactly what the baptism of the Holy Ghost is. When you are baptized with the Holy Ghost, His nature becomes one with you. Where you now become something else. I'm no longer a cucumber. I'm not that anymore. I am now a pickle. I'm no longer a sinner. I am now a new creation in Christ because I am one with Him. What water baptism does is it gets the heart ready to receive the vinegar. To receive the Holy Spirit. It opens the heart up. That's one of the things that it does. It gets your heart ready to receive the fullness of God's essence becoming one with you. So again, the second is the act of baptizing the the vegetable produces a permanent change. When used in the New Testament, this word more often refers to our union and identification in Christ than to our water baptism. Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Christ is is saying that mere intellectual ascent is not enough. There must be a union with him, a real change, like the vegetable or the cucumber into a pickle. We must have a union. There's a oneness that we have with God, where God's essence becomes unified with us, where when, when the devil looks at us, he can't tell the difference between us and him. Because we're so one with him. He's so in us and, and, and we in him that we become something else. I'm not a cucumber anymore. I'm a pickle. So I said in the same sense that... Our, I'll skip this part. I already said that. Okay. First Corinthians 6, 9, verse 11, kind of emphasizing this point. Uh, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor violence, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Notice all these identities that he is listing. Identities, not just actions, but identities and natures. Idolaters, adulterers, fornicators, effeminate, uh, those who are abusers of mankind. Identities, things that are the natural outworking of their nature. Then it says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We have become, we were that. We're not that anymore. One of the biggest misconceptions about salvation and identification is that often I hear believers say that I'm a sinner saved by grace. That is a lie. You are not. You are a saint kept by grace. You're Quit identifying yourself with your sin because that doesn't exist anymore. We're not an alcoholic anonymous. We're not saying I'm a recovering alcoholic or I'm a recovering sinner. No, I am a saint. I am righteous in God. I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I'm now a saint kept by God's grace. Big difference. It's very important that we assume the correct identity because from our identity, we derive our actions and our behavior. Hope I'm making sense so far. Y'all with me? Let's continue. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That God ordained, he created us to walk in a certain manner by us becoming a new creation, by us becoming born again. Yeah. 
Number three, it is to become just like Jesus. Salvation is becoming just like Jesus. In the spirit, whenever you get born again, you are just as righteous, just as holy as Christ is because he is now impugned unto you his essence, his spirit, his goodness into your heart. Romans 8, 28, verse 29 says this, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That God predestinated that you would be conformed, that you would be created to look like Jesus, to be just like Jesus in the spirit realm. So again, just to kind of recap, that salvation is a work of God, it's not of man. If I'm the one doing it, then it's not salvation. If I could do it, then I'd just do it myself. If I could do it, then we could just follow the Old Testament and be done with it. But the Old Testament was just a huge, a very long social experiment to show us how bad we are and how we can't do it. It was a mirror to show us our wretchedness, our depravity, to show us how wicked we are and to make us ready for a, for a Savior. Number two, that it is not a change in actions, but a change in nature and in the heart. When the nature gets changed, the actions will follow suit. That's what we have to understand. And we have, we have people that are really, they're not necessarily born again, they're just convicted sinners. They haven't really had the transformation. They're just, they're trying to change their lifestyle apart from really uh, imploring the, 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 the spirit and the power of God. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Number three, it is to become like Jesus Christ. We're going to look just like Jesus. Spiritually, when, when God looks at us, he sees Christ in us because we are one with him. Okay, now, having said, laid that foundation, section number two I like to call putting off the old man. Putting off the old man. Okay, uh, Brother Chris, that's all great and dandy, but salvation is. But now how do I accomplish that? <laughs> how, how do I do that? So for those of you that are saved, that, uh, there's a process that we go through. It's called renewing the mind. And I'm going to kind of be talking about that through this series of lessons about putting off the old man and what that really all entails. So the old man, let me just define what I mean by that, is the unredeemed carnal or human nature that is under the dominion of sin, under the control of sin. What we were apart from Christ, our human flesh nature. It is infected with sin, it is wicked, it is inherently disgusting and deplorable, and is always at enmity and in rebellion against God. It's the unredeemed carnal or human nature that is under the dominion of sin. I'm just going to summarize what our old nature is. Here's just a few points. Number one, it's infected with sin. This thing is diseased. This body is diseased with sin. Sin is more than just a legal condition. It is a disease. And it has a 100% mortality rate. It kills everybody. The whole reason why we die is because of sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the, but, uh, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. It has a 100% mortality rate if the cure is not applied. It is infected with sin. It is wicked and deceitful. Wicked and deceitful. It is conniving. It will lie to you because it wants to please itself. It will, you'll, you'll look at those cookies and just say, I'll just have one. Look at that, that cake and it's just one piece. And next thing you know, you've eaten the whole thing. I'm only going to just watch. We lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves. And you can name, name a sin. We lie to ourselves. It's not that bad. Just one look. Just one Sniff, just one drink, just whatever it is, just one thing, one little taste. It's deceitful. You cannot trust it. 
It is the servant of the devil. The, the carnal man is in cahoots with Satan. Because Satan, he operates by um, enticing our human nature, our flesh, because it has these horrible, disgusting appetites. It is the object of God's wrath, and it is also the object of God's redemption. That God's wrath is being poured out on the, the, the old man. It's poured on that, and that's, that's what God is trying to redeem us from, from this horrible human nature that we have. Number, uh, there we go. Number five, it is in desperate need of a savior. In desperate need of a savior. As Sister Johnny so eloquently put it, that we do need to make, make people realize that they need to be saved. That there is a hell to be shown. That there is a heaven to gain. Again, I'm not, not soft peddling that. Because if you don't realize that you're, you're nasty, that you need to be saved, then you're, you're not going to change. If you don't realize you're, you're, stink, you're stinking, you're disgusting, you won't take a shower. You just, just keep, I'm comfortable, I'm good. I'm good, you know. <laughs> I'm all right. Straight. Case in point. Let's go back to my diaper analogy. My children are famous for this. Particularly my, my daughter Abigail. She's really famous for this. She, she'd make a big mess in her diaper. Her pants are drooping. I mean, it's just... And we can all smell it. It's obvious. She's got a mess of diaper. I remember distinctly. I asked her, did you go boo-boo in your diaper? She's like, no. Like, I can smell there's something wrong here. But how many of us are like that with God? Did you make a sin? Did you boo-boo? Is there a mess there? No. Or you notice this when they start getting older. They start trying to be sneaky about it, you know. They got to they gotta go boo-boo and so they go in a corner. They go hide for a little bit. Isn't that, that's human nature. That's what we do, right? We think, well, we can go in the closet and do it. Nobody will notice. Not come out. And it's, it's walking like a cowboy like this, you know. We can all smell it. You need a diaper change. We can all tell you need to be saved. But in our arrogance, we just, just won't admit it. <laughs> Say we're proud of our stinky mess. You know, we're, we're proud of this, this, this disgusting thing we have created. And people are boasting and having parades about the mess that they're living in. They won't repent because they don't realize that they need a Savior. They need a Savior. Let us continue. So question number one, how do we put off the old man? This is really a three-stage process. Number one, we need the grace of God. Number two, we need the knowledge of God. And then thirdly, we need the fear of the Lord. Now, this fear of the Lord thing is a revelation that the Lord gave me a few years ago, probably like eight or nine years ago, roughly, uh, about what the fear of the Lord truly is. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it and also try and deal with some, of, some misunderstandings, misconceptions regarding what the fear of the Lord is. But let's talk about this. In order for us to truly put off the old man, to, to be saved, is that we need first the grace of God. The grace of God. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Notice that grace is not a license to sin. It doesn't give us a free pass to go do whatever we want. That God is so loving and so gracious and so merciful that he'll just absolve me and allow me to live however I want. That's not the biblical definition of grace. The, the Bible says that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly in this present world, to live godly. That's what grace does. Grace is, is, is basically God saying, I'm, so, I'm going to be so good to you that you're going to want to change and come to me. 
God is being so good to us that we want to show our gratitude to him by changing our lifestyle. It's appeared to allow us to change. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. So we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's not to enable us to live a sinful lifestyle. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2. I want you to understand this, uh, what Peter is saying. If you recall earlier that I quoted Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where it says, By grace are ye saved through faith. Now look how grace is applied. 2 Peter 1, 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Notice how knowledge is emphasized. And if you read this chapter, you'll see that knowledge is is hammered. Peter is really emphasizing this knowledge thing. God's grace is multiplied. It's applied to us, manifested in us, becomes real and actualized in us through the knowledge of God, through the knowledge of Him. Now the question is this, how do we truly obtain this knowledge? Oops. Something got moved here. Okay. So I want to kind of uh, read a quote from Bishop Carlton Pearson. I'm not sure you've ever heard of him. He was a pretty affluent and famous bishop, uh, particularly in the 90s and early 2000s. And he got a revelation in his mind of what's called the gospel of inclusion, that everyone is automatically saved and that hell does not exist. Everyone's automatically redeemed. What drove him to this understanding was he had a a misconception of what salvation is. What drove him to this was his grandparents backslid and they died lost. And so he didn't like the idea of them uh, suffering eternal judgment. And so he, be, he it left him vulnerable and open to this idea of a gracious God that does not punish anyone for sin. And that, there is, that the gospel is inclusive. It means everyone's automatically redeemed. You don't have to believe in God. You don't have to do all this stuff. And one of the reasons why is because he had a, a misunderstanding of the fear of God. I want to read you this quote. He was being interviewed by NBC News. And he said the following. If you fear God the way that we're taught to fear him, you'll serve him, you'll believe in him, you'll worship him, but you probably will never really love him. Because, again, his idea of God was, as I stated earlier, a caricature of this tyrannical dictator who's just looking at you, waiting to strike you with a lightning bolt the moment you mess up. And that if you don't live perfect, don't live holy, you're going to die and go to hell. And so that you, you're, you're more serving him, your, your actions are more motivated by fear than they are love. This was his analysis. You're, if you're taught to fear God, the way that we're taught to fear him, like you'll serve him, you'll believe in him, but you probably will never actually love him because you can't love something you're afraid of. Fear it repulses, it pushes back, it does not attract. There's no, no one runs to something that they're afraid of and tries to give it a hug, okay? If you're, if you're genuinely scared of something, it's, you and I, you and it are going to separate. Fear separates. So people who come to God just based on fear alone, just the fear of hell, there will always be a distance, there will always be a separation between them and God because you cannot get close to something that you're scared of. Right? I'm scared to death of God because if I get too close and he examines my diaper, instead of cleaning me, he's going to beat me. He's going to destroy me. So this idea of the fear of God, we need to have the fear of God and you know be scared of God. But is that what the Bible really means when it says the fear of God? Let's go into some definitions here. So the fear of the Lord, it is not a terror or phobia of God, but a reverence or respect for God. It's having respect, not a fear or terror, okay? I respect my parents. I'm not afraid of my parents, right? I have a respect and a reverence for them, but I'm not running in terror every time they walk into a room when I was a kid. Unless, unless I've done something bad. <laughs> then it's a different story. <laughs> 
But the thing is, it's not a phobia or a fear. It's a reverence. It's a respect. Psalms 25 verse 12. I want you to see some things about the fear of the Lord here. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach. Notice, remember I said earlier how God's grace is applied through knowledge? Notice that here, that what man is, is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. God's secrets, God's covenant, his revelation, his knowledge is obtained by having a fear of the Lord. It says the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. That sounds bizarre. We see in 1 John 4, 16, that, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in him, dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. God is love, and God says, God says, my love casts out fear, but yet we are see, we've seen in the scripture that we're commanded to fear the Lord. It almost sounds like a contradiction. But it's not when you have a proper understanding of what it is. Now, I'm going to kind of give the basic definition of whenever you hear the word fear the Lord, or what the fear of the Lord does for you. But I'm going to add a third thing, which I, I haven't really heard anyone talk about until the Lord gave me this kind of revelation about eight years ago. So godly fear is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs 1 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Psalms 11 uh, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding of all they that do his commandments, his praise endureth forever. Remember that in order to be saved, you've got to get the grace of God. The way you get the grace of God is getting a knowledge of God. The way that you get the knowledge of God is by having a fear of God. Do you see the progression? Now, there's one part to the fear of God that we're missing, because these things aren't telling you what the fear of the Lord is. I know it says the fear of the Lord is knowledge and wisdom. But really what it's telling is what you're getting. You have to add another verse in there to truly understand what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Now look at this. Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. True respect for God shows a hatred for the things that he hates. If I say... If I say I love God, but I do things that he hates, how can I say I love God? If I say I love my wife, and there's something that she absolutely cannot stand, drives her crazy, hurts her, disrespects her, and I do it anyway, can I truly say I love God? No, if you have a respect for something, then you won't do the things that they hate, and you'll hate the same things that they do. And when you hate the same things that they do, you won't do those things anymore. And your life will start to change. One of the reasons why the fear of the Lord leads to wisdom and knowledge is because people will not receive new knowledge until they hate the old knowledge that they're holding on to. You cannot grab a new lifestyle with closed fists. Change does not happen until you hate what you are now. You ever watch the show like The Biggest Loser? You see these people who lose like, you know, hundreds of pounds. Right? They completely just transform their life. The reason why they changed is because they got tired of being out of breath coming up a few uh, steps of stairs. They got tired of having to pay for two seats in an airplane. They got tired of not being able to have a, a quality of life. They began to hate their life and because of that it caused them to change their lifestyle and become a new person. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If you don't hate evil, then you do not truly fear God. 
and you are not, you're making yourself ineligible to receive the knowledge of God has. Because God cannot tell you anything new until you let go of what is old. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the forward, the difficult, the wicked mouth do I hate. Psalm 97 verse 10 says, he that love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Matthew 6, 24 says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The reason why you're still in sin, the reason why you're still struggling with addiction is because you don't hate it enough. If you truly hate something, you'll leave it alone. Think of a food that you hate. Think of a food that you hate. I mean, just a food that you cannot stand. Like the, the mere smell of it just makes you want to puke. And if I came to you, so I took this food that you ate, and I said, hey, man, I'll give you this if you go rob this bank. Or if you go do this for me. But I think, get that away for that. That doesn't tempt me. I don't want this thing. You cannot be tempted with something that you hate. The only reason why you're tempted by it is because there's something in you that's attracted to it and that loves it. To break the temptation, you've got to get a hatred of it and condemn it. As long as you still love it, you'll still keep going right back to it. You've got to get a hatred. This is critical because once you hate it, then you get God's knowledge. And once you get God's knowledge, you get God's grace. You see the progression. This is how you put off the old man. You've got to hate it. The reason why you haven't changed is because you don't hate it enough. You're comfortable in it. You're okay with it. When you truly hate it, when you truly can't stand it, when it makes you itch, when it keeps you up at night, then there'll be change. You've got to hate your old lifestyle. I really want to hammer that point because that's what, because people, God's a God of love. He's also a God of hatred. He hates wickedness. He hates sin. Putting off the old man means we have to hate evil. The question is, do we really hate it? The fear of the Lord is to respect or reverence God. It is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, and it is to hate evil. Truly hate the things that God hates. What is it that God hates? Here's a few examples of things that God hates. He hates evil pride and arrogance, wicked mouths, every false way, a lying tongue, killing the innocent, a heart that plots evil, division or discord in a family or in the church. He hates these things. Thievery. Now the list goes on and on. You name any type of sin that exists, God hates it. And the reason why the church has lost its distinction and the power of the gospel, as Sister Johnny said earlier, because we don't hate sin anymore. We're comfortable living in sin. Comfortable being around sin. Comfortable watching sin, listening to sin, fellowshipping with sin. And because there is, there's this no hatred, there's no separation, and there is no holiness. God hates worldly ideas, concepts, and morals, carnal or fleshly behavior, all sexual sin, fornication, adultery, pornography, masturbation, pedophilia, homosexuality. He hates all these things that we need to abandon and condemn. Until that happens, there will be no change. So that's really step number one is putting off the old man is getting a hatred of it. All right. Question number three, who are you? This is where I really want to kind of emphasize this thing. Who are you? In Acts chapter 19, uh, the apostle Paul is preaching in Ephesus and there was many miracles and signs and wonders and devils cast out. And of course, whenever there's someone who's a superhero who's doing good things, there's always counterfeits and copycats. And there's these seven guys, they were the son of Sceva. They decided that they wanted to replicate what Paul was doing. That's what we find here in Acts chapter 19, 
verses 13 through 16. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and and wounded. This is critical. We must know who we are. We must know who we are. The devil in every temptation, in every challenge, in every test, in every tribulation is going to question who you are. Who are you that you'd come into my house and try to exorcise me out or kick me out? Who are you to try and to walk in dominion or walk in in healing or walk in whatever? He's going to challenge you. If you recall that the temptation of Christ, two of the temptations, two-thirds of the temptations were based upon Christ's identity. That if thou be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If thou be the Son of God, jump off of this pinnacle, for it's written that he shall give his angels charge over thee, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. They're all about questioning God, uh, Christ's identity. Because if you don't know who you are, then you can't act right. Think of all the, the controversy that's going right now with identity politics. What is a man? What is a woman? Who are you? What are you? Because we don't know who we are, we don't know how to behave. Right? We don't know how to behave. Our actions are dictated by our identity. And I'll just use this as an analogy. Um, when I was a kid... You know, I um, used to dress up for like Halloween and so on back back in the day. And I remember I used to love being Batman. And I got, used to get the Batman mask and I got the cape and everything and I got the utility belt, put all that stuff on. And whenever I put that stuff on, I started to act different. I started to like, pretend I was jumping off a building with a grappling hook and pretending I was punching the Joker and so on. Because the out, I couldn't act like I'm, you know, just Chris wearing a Batman outfit, right? You can't just act like your normal self. You're wearing a fireman outfit or a police officer's outfit or a Spider-Man outfit. The outfit you put on kind of determines the behavior that you have. Think about that spiritually. What are you putting on spiritually? Right? If I'm putting on like a workout outfit, that means I'm about to go get, go work out. Put on my, 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 um, work clothes and I'm about to do work. The uniform helps to get you into a role and helps you assume an identity. And the problem with the church is we keep putting on our old nasty filthy rags in sin instead of putting on the identity the role of Christ because once you put on the Christ clothes oh I'm supposed to act like Jesus right that's the problem we don't know who we are we need to know who we are here's a very good example of what we have in the church look at this picture so this is obviously Spider-Man right but he's got a Batman mask on got an identity crisis Spider-Batman, that'd be a freaky looking thing to see. But this is exactly what's happening in the church. Why are we putting on the Batman mask? Why are we putting on the sinner mask? We need to assume the identity that's in Christ. We know who we are. Let's continue. Now I want to talk to you about the mystery of Christ. Paul's revelation. This is something that Paul got about this mystery. And and throughout all of his epistles, throughout, throughout the whole New Testament, you'll hear Paul talk about this mystery that he's he's realized, he's uncovered. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Listen very closely to this. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, 
as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's about to tell us and said, what I'm about to tell you guys is something that the, the prophets, that the Old Testament writers had no knowledge of. It's a mystery that, that God has revealed unto me that I'm now going to reveal unto you. Okay, I want you to see that. Verse number six, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am, am the less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. He said, this has been hidden in God. This has not been revealed to anyone else who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places that be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. He said, I'm about to reveal something to you that has been hidden from the, from the beginning of time. Nobody knew, knew this. This mystery that's in Christ has been hidden. What is this mystery? Ephesians 5.30 For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The mystery that, that Paul is revealing is that God could live and reside within mankind himself. That God could become one with man and live inside him through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because before that, that was not there. Before that all was there was commandments, you had to do this, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. They didn't understand that. That was one part of it. The other part of the mystery is that Gentiles could partake in this salvation. Because the Jews always thought, we're it in the bag of chips, we're the only ones that are going to be saved. But part of the mystery was that all that salvation was for everybody, from all walks of life. Didn't matter what, what side of the tracks you were born on, it was for everybody. But look at what he's saying here. He says, look. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. We are connected to him. And he uses marriage as an analogy to understand that. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ in the church. Ephesians 1, 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things. See this oneness that's there, this unification that's in Christ that we're at. Yeah, I'm going to gather all things, in, uh, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10. How be it? I just wanted to see this, how Paul keeps talking about this mystery. How may we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught? But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. The devil did not realize that God was actually going to make us new creations. He did not realize that God himself, his essence, his spirit was going to inhabit man. He had no clue, and this is why this was so dangerous for him. Because before, he only had to deal with one Jesus. But when the Holy Spirit came, now he's going to deal with thousands and millions of them. Because God has multiplied himself by giving us his spirit living inside of us. Had he known that, he might have altered his approach and how to handle Jesus. 
He said, none of the prince of this world, the principalities and the powers, the spiritual wickedness in high places, didn't comprehend this mystery of salvation. Verse 8, which none of the prince of the world knew, for, for had they known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. The mystery. The mystery. Last one. I want you to really understand how beautiful, how awesome. Salvation was a mystery that was hidden, that was not known until Paul got this revelation. Colossians 1, 25-27. Where have I made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery, which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is Christ living in us. Do you see that? That this salvation thing is a revelation. It's a, it's a mystery to people because how could God take the worst disgusting of sinners and make them righteous? Why would God even want to do that? Why would God love a sinner, love a wretch, love a disgusting Horrible person like myself. It's a mystery. But God has revealed this mystery through the Spirit of God. First Corinthians 6.15. Now remember I said the analogy I gave about the cucumber and the pickle. Look at this. Know you not that, that your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know you not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. One. One spirit. You're one with Christ. I know that we, we preach and we teach the oneness of God. But we also talk about the oneness we have with God. The oneness, the, the unity that we have with Christ. That we are one with him. Amen. So the mystery of Christ is that man would be uni- united eternally with his spirit. And you are exactly like Christ. I read this earlier in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. As Christ is righteous, perfect, and holy, you are in this world once you are born again and you've given yourself to God. It's a marvelous thought. My goodness, it's a wonderful thought. But I digress. Let's continue. So a new person in Christ and the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 21 says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Which means I don't know you because of your past, about your human nature. The only way I know you is by who you are in Christ. That's how we identify. You're no longer that identity anymore. It says, henceforth, we know no man after the flesh. We don't know them after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Build all things have become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation to it that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And, and we are his, our ambassadors for, for Christ as though God did beseech you. But by us, we pray in Christ that be reconciled to God. And look what it says in verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin 
that we might be made the righteousness of God. You are the very righteousness of God. You understand that? Jesus became sin itself, not just a sinner. He became sin itself, the very idea and consciousness. And he became that, that we might become righteous in God. This is a, a, a good example, this picture here, is that, yeah, the outside hasn't changed. But when we get saved, there's something that's changed on the inside. Who you are in Christ. I want you to, want to remind yourself who you are in Christ. Because remember, if you don't know who you are, your identity, then you won't know how to behave. And one of the reasons why that we're misbehaving, because we don't know who we are. We don't have the identity. The, we're not putting on the right outfit. We're putting on the nasty sinner outfit, so we're doing nasty, sin, sinful things. Who we are in Christ. This is what the Bible says who you are. You're a new person in Christ, as I read earlier. That you're the righteous of God. You're exactly as Jesus Christ is. As perfect and righteous as he is. You are a son of God and not a servant. You are a son of God and not a servant. Now, in another sermon and lesson I taught about this, the difference between being a servant, which is in the Greek is as doulos, which means a slave, and a son, that a slave or a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. A slave has no rights and has no authority. A slave also does not get an inheritance. But the Bible calls us sons of God because as sons of God, we have inheritance in God, in God. We do have access to the Father to obtain his will. And we also have authority and dominion to exercise. That we're a son of God. We're no longer slaves to fear, slaves to sin. We're now sons of God. You are complete in him. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. That, that really gets me, that you are complete in him part. You are complete in him. You lack nothing. If you've been born again, you lack nothing. You lack nothing. You have everything you need. You don't need someone else to lay hands on you or, or baptize you in holy oil. You just need to walk out and exercise what God has already given you. You are hidden in God. Uh, Colossians 3.2 3, uh, sorry, 3, 2 says, Set your affections on, on, on things above and on things there, for you are, de- you are dead in Christ. And you are, you are hidden in Christ. You are hidden in Christ. You are hidden in Him. Here's a wonderful analogy about identities and how we're hidden in Christ. That when people see us, they don't, they don't see us. They're seeing Him. They see Christ. Okay? For example, let's say you witnessed a crime. Let's say you witnessed like a mob boss, like um, killing somebody. All right? And the, the FBI has now tagged you as being a witness, a key witness in this case against this mob boss. And they want you to testify in this trial against the mob boss. Now, the mob boss knows who you are, and he wants to kill you to prevent you from testifying. So he's put a hit on you. Right? He wants to kill you. So what does the FBI do? They put you in witness protection, witness protection program. They give you a new identity, new social security number, new driver's license. They move you to a new location, change your name. And they tell you, stay in this place. Be, act as if you are this identity. You cannot go back to the friends you used to hang out with. You cannot go back to your own house. You cannot frequent the restaurants and business you used to. Because if you do, the mob boss will see you and he'll get you. But if you keep this identity, the mob boss can't find you. Do you know that when you got born again, you witnessed something amazing? And the devil's got a hit on you and does not want you to testify about what you have seen Jesus do? And to protect you, Jesus changed your identity and moved you someplace to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And he's telling you, don't go back to the old things you were doing. Don't hang out with your old friends. Don't go out to your old restaurants, watch the old shows you used to watch. Why? Because then you're putting on your old identity and the devil will find you and get you and pull you back into sin. 
Got a little too excited there. Does that make sense? The only reason why you fall asleep because you stuck your head out of the out of the place where God was hiding you. Oh, there he is. It's like whack-a-mole. You ever go to the like uh, like the arcade and they had that whack-a-mole game? You have those those moles that pop out of the hole and you gotta like pound them. Stay in the hole, stupid mole. Stay in your hole. <laughs> Stay in Christ. Stay down. Keep your head down. Stay under the blood of Jesus. The moment you come out, that's when the devil sees you, and now you get into sin. All right. I gotta hurry. More stuff to cover. Okay. Who are you? So you are dead. In, you are dead to sin. Dead to it. It's dead to you when you're born again. You are healed in Christ. You are one with God, as I alluded to earlier. You have a oneness with Him. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ. You're changed position because He's put you in a witness protection program where the devil can't get you anymore. Can't reach you. Because you're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's who you are. You need to assume that identity as you're living the Christian walk. Alright. Now the fun part. I call this when Clark Kent became Superman. When Clark Kent became Superman, again, identities, roles, behaviors, natures, changing the way that we are. When Clark Kent became Superman. So Clark Kent had all of his superpowers when he was born and didn't know how to use them. Once he he did, he became Superman. So when Clark Kent was born, he had all the powers. He had the super strength, the super speed, the hearing, the laser eyes, all that stuff. The thing is, though, he didn't know how to use them. And as he got older and he matured, he started figuring out, oh, I can fly. Oh, I can lift stuff. Oh, I can see through walls. He matured and began to operate in what he already had. Do you understand? You don't need to go to another conference to get another anointing or someone lay hands on you. You've got everything that you need. When you get the Holy Ghost, you got everything. Get rid of this old covenant mindset about I need a double portion. That's Old Testament. You can't get a double portion of everything because you've already got it. <laughs> what else can he give you? <laughs> I've given you everything. <laughs> There's nothing else for me to give you. I can't multiply this anymore. You've got me. I'm living in every cell and molecule and atom of your body. What do you mean you mean more? Double por- What the? I can see God like, what is this? Double portion. If you've got the Holy Ghost, you've got everything. The problem is you just don't know how to use what you've got. I've had this... I've had this cell phone for five years. I still don't know how to use everything that's on it. All the features are there. I just need to read the manual. And then I'll learn how to do stuff. And little by little as I'm using the phone, I start, oh, I can do this. It can, it can uh, do my taxes even. It can, I mean, it's... When, some, when a baby is born, the first thing we do, we start counting fingers and toes and all this other stuff, right? Oh, good. He's got all his fingers. He's got all his toes. The baby is complete. He's got everything he needs, all the muscles, all the bones, everything, all the cells. He's got everything he needs. He's just not mature enough. And as he grows, he learns how to, oh, I can roll over. Oh, I can sit up. He's, no, now I know how to stand. And now I know how to walk. He already had everything there. He just needed to learn how to use what he already had. And that's the problem in the church. Remember I said in, in, in the beginning of this presentation about 2, uh, 2 Timothy 3.5, ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth? They keep thinking that I've got to learn something new or get this new whatever instead of just using what they already have and exercising what you have. You learn the most by exercising and by doing. We think that we're growing in Christ by just by being taught. No, you grow when you, you apply what you've been taught. 
when Jesus said that man shall live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, he means by you live, or you live by, uh, or I should say, the word of God is made real to you by what you live by. All right? It doesn't matter how many scriptures I preach to you or how many you quote or memorize. If you don't live by any of them, then you're not really doing anything. <laughs> you're not growing. You gotta, it's what you live by. So the thing is, we got to become Superman, okay? And we do that by using what we've got. So putting on the new man is to come to a full experiential knowledge or understanding of who Christ is in us and what he has given you. Understand what you got when you got saved. Open the manual. Read about all the special features that are there, that are at your disposal to help you succeed in the Christian walk with God. So becoming Superman, I want you to understand this, how powerful this is. Philemon 1.4 says, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast uh, toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Now look at this, says in verse 6, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. The Bible says your faith becomes effective when you acknowledge what is already in you in Christ Jesus. That's why it's good when you get up in the morning, you look yourself in the mirror, you say, I am the righteousness of God. I am a son of God. I heal the sick. I raise the dead. I, I walk in wholeness. You need to remind yourself, acknowledge it. You know one of the cool things about my phone is, is that it's voice activated. Whenever I speak, it, it comes to light with what I say and it, it, and it research. I say, I can say this. Let's just try this real quick. Okay, Google. Oh, it's too, too quiet. I can say, or... Hello, Suri, whatever. I, I, I speak and then my assistant awakens and it goes and it does what I need it to do. Do you know you have a, uh, a spiritual digital assistant living inside you called the Holy Spirit? And he's voice activated. When you start praising God and start quoting his word, he comes alive and starts searching out things to get for you so that you can be successful in your walk with God. He's voice activated. You need to acknowledge, confess who you are in Christ. He says, by the acknowledging of every good thing that is in you, in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead body, and ye are complete. Alright? Forget what um, sin Jerry Maguire, that ye complete me. He completes us. No man can complete you. It says, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Complete everything I need, everything I need to chase out devils, everything I need to heal the sick, everything I need to get victory and to get deliverance. I already got. It. I just got to open the box and read the manual and start putting this thing together. Let's just move on here. Uh, okay, Ephesians four ten verse fifteen says this: He that descended is the same also that ascended up for uh, far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the... There's that knowledge thing again I was talking about. The knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay in wait to deceive... But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So that's my job as, as, a, as a minister of the gospel, is, just, is to kind of assist you in helping you realize what you've already got if you've been born again. That's all I'm doing. You've already got it. You just need to learn how to just do this. Maybe help troubleshoot a few things. But really, you've already got it. If you've been saved and been born again, you just need to exercise. My, my children would never walk unless they started to exercise. They started to try. And yes, they fall. 
That's part of learning. You may not get it right the first time, okay? I don't know many people who just get born again and become T.D. Jakes or Billy Graham the next day. All right? I, I, I've never seen that. <laughs> it's a growing process. And yes, you may make a few messes in your diaper. You may trip and you may fall along the way. But that's part of growing. That we need to try. We need to exercise our faith. It's not enough just to meditate on the word, to speak the word, but to do the word. That's how you get strong. The reason why the church is so weak is because we don't exercise. Think of it this way. If all I did was eat, but I never exercised, what happens? Start to gain weight. That's what happened during 2020, for me anyway. I started gaining weight because I wasn't exercising. I got lazy. The gym was closed. I was sitting on, on the couch just eating cookie dough. It got so bad, and I'm telling you the truth. This is so shameful. My wife and I, we watched an exercise video while eating cookie dough. And we were laughing at the people who were, were like, really like, <laughs> you guys can't do it. Yep. That's how we do in church. We're watching people get, you know, born again, watching people do stuff. We're not doing the video itself. And we're hearing good teaching, good preaching. We're feeding on the word, but we're just getting bloated. If you want to get ripped and get chiseled, you got to get out there and start lifting, start running, start doing something. Do something with your faith. Otherwise, you get overweight and you get sloppy. <laughs> you want to get, you don't want to get doughy. You want to get rid of the dad bod. You want to get moving here. So let's continue here. We grow up into him. We got to exercise our faith. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I, I didn't have time to put this in the presentation. I'm just going to explain what Paul's talking about here. The Greek word here for transformed is the Greek word metamorpho. It's where we get the word metamorphosis where a, a caterpillar is literally changed, metamorphosized, I think I'm saying it right, into a butterfly. This word is only used a couple times in Scripture. There's one in particular instance of its usage that really helps us to understand what Paul is saying here. In, in Matthew chapter 17, the Bible says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a mountain. And the Bible says that he was metamorphosed, transfigured, which means that when you saw Jesus, he just looked like a normal guy. Right? He's just a normal Jew, whatever. But when he went on the mountain, uh, this mountain, the Bible says that he was transfigured. He's metamorphosed, which means his inward deity, his divinity, became outward and was revealed. And the, body says, the Bible says that he began to glow with glory and a radiant light from himself. What Jesus did is he took what was on the inside and allowed it to come to the outside. When the Bible says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, when you start getting the word of God in you, you start to bring, manifest what's on the inside and the outside. All this anointing, all this power, all this glory is in there. It's shielded in this lump of clay. But when you begin to renew your mind and assume the position, the identity of Christ, and exercising and doing the word, you start taking that inward glory and start manifesting and shining your light so the whole world can see. That's what's happening. We're just, and again, I'm using another analogy. Uh, there's this film that came out in the 80s. It was called The Last Dragon. <laughs> Dating myself with this. But, uh, and in this movie, there's this martial artist who's trying to reach this final level of mastery. And this final, ma this final level is called The Glow. And throughout the whole movie, he's trying to find this master to teach him how to become the master and manifest this glow. And there's this villain in the, in the movie called Shonuff. And throughout the entire movie, 
showed up his gun for Leroy, trying to fight it because he wants to say, I'm the master. And throughout the entire movie, he's got this posse, this entourage saying, who's the master? And it was like, show enough. <laughs> and through the entire movie, Leroy is ducking and running and trying to get away from Shonoff, not trying to fight him. Because he doesn't know who the master is yet. He's not reached that final level. He finally gets to a point where he can't avoid Shonoff anymore. And he starts fighting him. And then Shonoff grabs him and he's ducking him in some water. He's like, now, all right, Leroy, I want you to, to, to tell me who the master is. And finally, it dawns on Leroy, I'm the master. I have everything I need. I have everything I need to beat Shonuff. And once he realizes, he starts to go. Kind of like Jesus. How many of you guys have been running from Shonuff and ducking and hiding because you think you don't know enough? If you would just realize, I have the master living inside of me. I ain't kissing no converse. I'm not going to allow him to dominate me. I have the master inside me. I just need to exercise and act like it. And once Leroy realized that, he started glowing. And he started beating Shonuff up. And he won the battle. What we need to do, <laughs> we got to get the glow. we got to become and realize that Jesus is the master. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. What we have. We have the mind of Christ. When you are born, when you put on the new man, you put on the mind, the mentality of a victor, yeah. not a loser. Right. We, have to, we have to put on that mentality of the mind of Christ. Listen, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, where it says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? You've got to realize that you are not a loser. You are a victor. You're not the head. I mean, you're not the tail. You're the head. You have authority and power over the enemy. Every spiritual blessing is ours, is what we have in Christ. And we have power and authority over all devils and over all demons. And we have life inside of us. We have the, the very everlasting life of Christ living and residing inside of us to overcome death and destruction. Now, why is it so hard to put off the old man and to put on the new one? So, what does it mean to be carnal minded? Here's where our problem is, is we have a carnal mind. We don't, we don't put on the mind of Christ. And I'm going to close with with this last thought here. The carnal mind, it leads to death. The Bible says that if for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. We're thinking like other human beings, other sinners are, instead of thinking like Jesus does. We look at a circumstance, look at a situation, and we're looking through our human senses and thinking, this is impossible. Jesus like, duh, hello, that's what I'm here. Matthew 19, 26 says, with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. We have to realize that we're not like that anymore, that we are in Christ. The, the carnal mind is at war with God. The carnal mind is at is enmity against God, the Bible says. It can never please God. If you're walking in your flesh and not in faith, according to the new man, mind, uh, the new man in Christ, the Bible says you can't please God. You'll always be set up for failure. And that's exactly what happens. People are trying to please God with their works and how much they pray and how much they attend church. When they have to realize that, you know, I loved you when you were still in sin. Why do you think that you doing more is going to try and get me to love you anymore? I loved you at your worst. <laughs> Romans 5 eight. but God commendeth his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But we think we got to do more to try and get God to love us when God's love was not based upon our performance in the first place. It was based upon his choice. It's based upon his sovereign choice. Sister Johnny, you have a comment on this? Let me come to you real quick. Now I'm going to wrap this up. We're going to close. Oh, 
on that thought, I was just thinking because I think of my own self because I have this problem. And I'm trying my best to override this problem, but I realize I can't override the problem with my own thinking and with my own self. So now I tend to try to be more like Jesus to override this problem because I realize the problem is not only from the person who's giving it to me, but it's a problem that's trying to put me in check. So God is using somebody else to put me in check as to how I respond to that situation. Amen. 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 We got to get rid of the carnal mind. The Bible says this in uh, Psalms 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, right? Nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the, of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. If, we're, if we ignore the carnal, the human thinking, we assume the Christian, the Christ mind, is when we're going to see success. It cannot understand spiritual truths. One of the reasons, uh, here's an example of this about having a carnal mind versus a spiritual mind. All right, Jesus, with the apostles and the disciples was explaining things to them like crazy, and they never understood what in the world he was talking about. I mean, I mean, here's a perfect example. The guy I give this bread to is going to betray me. Hey, Judas! Judas gets up and leaves. wonder why he's leaving for. What's going on here? He's probably, probably going to go get some stuff for the Passover. What? I mean, they totally missed it, you know. This is one example. They, Jesus was telling them something. They just couldn't grasp the spiritual stuff he was saying, a lot of his teachings. But once they got born again, suddenly now they're writing the New Testament. Why? The carnal mind cannot understand spiritual truths. The, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just about intellectual understanding. It's a revelation. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to reveal unto us. We need God to, to uh, intervene on our behalf. So as I said before, it is a slave to Satan. The carnal mind is a slave to to say, we need to get rid of the carnal mind. We need to assume the mind of Christ. We do that by getting into the Word, by meditating on the Word, by studying the Word, by applying the Word. First Corinthians two thirteen through sixteen says, "Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him." Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judge of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. You just got to you gotta start operating in it. You got to operate in it. And last analogy, I'm, I'm closing. I'm going to stand. Actually, why don't we stand? Let's, let's close. I'm going to end this here. I know I threw a whole lot at you. Like I said, I normally spend a few, like a month or two diving into this. And I gave you the highlights, the cliff notes, and just kind of expanding a little bit. So go back and listen to this message again if you didn't catch everything. I hope it will bless you. But uh, yes, we think of it this way. <laughs> uh, think of it like operating systems or software. You ever got like a software update on your computer or your phone? So even though the hardware is still the same, when you get this new software, you start getting new features that can do new things. And that's exactly what God is doing with, with the renewing of the mind. Our physical body hasn't changed at all. But God giving us a software upgrade, we can now do things that we couldn't do before. Like you can speak in tongues, you lay hands on the sick, you can raise the dead, do all these things you couldn't do before under the old operating system, under the old carnal thinking. It is imperative that we understand Paul's revelation of the new man. That salvation is not a change in behavior, it's a change in nature. And the only way we're going to see that change is by assuming the identity 
of Christ, putting on the new man. Take off the old man. Throw those old ideas, that old past away. Put on the new identity in Christ. Uh, something that uh, Curry Blake once said, uh, Reverend Curry Blake, he said that uh, the, when the answer is the same, the problem doesn't matter. <laughs> when the answer is the same, the problem doesn't matter. So all the emotional problems you may have, things from your past, it doesn't matter because when you get a software upgraded on your computer, it wipes away the old software. All the errors you're having in your, and all the problems you're having, it just wipes it away. It has a new operating system that functions. You don't need to go to a psychiatrist and, and start exploring the problems. You need to just get the software upgraded and, and assume the position of who you are now. That's what you got to do because you don't heal a wound by probing it. I mean, all of y'all heard this when you were kids. You know, you got like a, uh, a cut on you or you cut your knee or whatever and you got to, it's starting to scab over and you start like picking at it. What did your mom always say? Stop picking at it. Stop scratching it, right? Because what you're doing is you're opening up the wound again. And that's what a lot of us are doing. We're just opening up old wounds, old things that God has dealt with already and thinking that's going to make it better. What we need to do is leave that alone and move on with our lives, go towards Christ, have him as the central focus, and then we're, we're going to see change. We're going to see healing. Uh, we're going to close. And I, I really hope that this uh, teaching of Paul's revelation of the new man, the new identity we have in Christ, has blessed you. And as I said, this is the foundation pretty much for everything. If you don't get this, we don't get anything. Because from this identity of who we are in Christ flows everything else. This is what tells us how to act like Christians is by understanding we are new creations in Christ. Let us pray today. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we glorify you, we magnify you, we exalt you. You are so awesome and wonderful in all of your ways. And we pray, Lord Jesus, help us to put on the new man, to forsake, to abandon the old man, the old way of living, and to truly embrace the lifestyle that you have in Christ. That we boast not in ourselves, but in your power. For God, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That we, O oh Lord Jesus, we boast in your power. We boast in your, your ability to save the most, the most depraved wretch and to make him the righteousness of God. I pray in the name of Jesus that this congregation would take on the new man and walk in the newness of life. That they would forsake, O oh Lord Jesus, the past and be free from condemnation, be free from guilt and shame and walk in righteousness of God. We thank you and bless you, O oh God. We ask, O oh Lord Jesus, bless our pastor and first lady as they're overseas. Protect them, O oh God. Use them to minister even as they are over in England today. Bless the service, O oh Lord Jesus, that we're going to have in the next service, O oh God. We thank you and bless you. And in Jesus' name, let the church of the living God say amen.